So Mike, you remember when we covered the startup Color, right? That raised 40 million and well, completely collapsed shortly thereafter. Yeah, I I do remember that. It seems like everyone that was involved basically tried to, I don't know, just sort of erase that from the internet. They tried, they tried, but we were still able to put together a pretty complete story. But that's not what we're talking about today, is it? No, 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 we're talking about an even bigger failure, actually uh, 75 million big. All right, well, only a well-known founder could raise that kind of money without (laughs) taking years and years and years and multiple rounds uh, based on company performance, right? Right, Uh, well, this is one of the most successful founders of our day, no other than Justin Kahn, the founder of Twitch, which sold to Amazon for nearly a billion dollars in 2014. Yeah, that's right. But I do remember the blip in his career. I know there are some great lessons in here for listeners, so we should get right into it right after we roll the intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play. Rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So back in 2014, Justin Kahn sold the video game streaming platform Twitch to Amazon for nearly $1 billion. The uh, U.S. online retail giant Amazon has bought Twitch, a video game streaming service in a deal worth nearly $1 billion U.S. dollars. Analysts say it's part of Amazon's plan to expand its media empire by capitalizing on the booming esports market. Amazon announced on Tuesday it would buy Twitch for $970 million in cash, marking one of the biggest acquisitions for the e-commerce company. And if I remember correctly, that deal was a who's who of Silicon Valley at the time with everybody making bids to purchase the company. That's right. It kicked off with Google making a billion-dollar offer, and the team actually walked away from it. But then that set off an even 
bigger bidding war. Here's Justin himself walking through the lead up to the eventual Amazon acquisition from his own YouTube channel. After the deal with Google went sideways, Zuck actually called Emmett up and said, hey, I want to invest $50 million and you guys should keep going. But the next big dog company to come knocking at our doors for an acquisition was Yahoo. Yahoo had been talking to us for a while, and after our bankers let them know that the company was still in play, they came back to us really quickly with a big number. $1.25 billion plus $250 million in retention. That was 50% more than what Google had just offered. Our minds were fucking blown. And we immediately said, yes, please, and thank you. At the time, because we have done all this painstaking diligence for the Google deal, we said, hey, let's just use the same documents and the same diligence, and let's agree to a quick two-week close. And Yahoo, for some reason, agreed. Then, the night before the deal was supposed to close, Emmett and the rest of the management team went over to Marissa Meyer's house. She was Yahoo CEO, and she wanted to do a final meeting. And Marissa had a vision for Twitch that I think encompassed Twitch expanding beyond gaming to everything from fashion shows to music. And unfortunately, there was a bit of a disconnect there. Emmett and the rest of the team felt like things were working with gaming and we should continue going with the direction we had. The next day, Yahoo told us they changed their mind. And just like that, $1.5 billion gone. We'd literally gone from zero to $1 billion to zero to $1.5 billion to zero. Now, by this time, we were so exhausted and burned out. It had been almost six months of doing deals and we were looking for anything. And somehow, Catalyst reactivated yet another buyer, Amazon. We started talking to their corporate development team and Emmett even met Jeff Bezos once. And then we agreed to do a deal. It was 1.2 billion with $200 million in retention. So how do these decisions get made? Well, after each offer, the board is obligated to discuss it. So we would get on a call, Emmett, myself, and the other board members, and talk about whether we thought it was a fair offer or whether we should keep going. And because the board is reliant on the management team, aka Emmett and the rest of the executives to run the company, we mostly wanted to do what he wanted to do. So the entire Twitch board is on a conference call. And we're discussing some of the minor details of the deal when one of our investors, Chris Pike, said, uh, I don't think we should do this deal. Hold up. Wait a minute. Something ain't right. This deal was going to make everyone around the table stupid rich. No one knows what to say. And there's dead silence. 30 seconds go by. One of our investors finally breaks in with, why not? And Chris says, well, I think the company's going to be worth more. And the other investor says, how, how much more? And Chris says, well, I think it could be worth three, four billion. I don't know. I just think it's going to be worth more and maybe we should keep going. There's another long silence. And then literally we just kept going like Chris never said anything. Everyone else just wanted to get this deal done. So we decided as a board, we're going to sell to Amazon. Third time's the charm. We're ready to sign this deal. Well, not so fast. Amazon Corp Dev calls us and said, well, they had a little bit of a change of heart and now the deal's priced at... $970 million. Take it or leave it. And you know what? We took it. It wasn't quite the billion dollars that we wanted, but well, it was close enough. All right. That is quite the story. Um, so we'll be right back next week with... <laughs> hold up, hold up, the... hold up. What? We're not done? <laughs> we haven't even started yet. We haven't even started yet. <laughs> I thought this was a short one. <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, got ahead of myself there. <laughs> all good, all good. So, okay, so that was 2014. Let's fast forward to 2017 when Justin founded Atrium, which was built as a legal services company, which would try to utilize a specific regulatory hack that Justin invented in order to innovate and streamline the way legal services were provided. In response to the expensive, confusing, and opaque nature of existing processes, Atrium built software for startups to navigate fundraising, hiring, acquisition deals, and collaborate with their legal teams. Justin himself was a power user, so he says, of legal services through his years as an entrepreneur, and he felt like he could make this experience better for the next generation of entrepreneurs. I had this really, what I thought was interesting idea around creating a new kind of legal services company that would utilize this specific kind of regulatory hack that I invented in order to uh, innovate on the way legal services are provided. Because I was a consumer of legal services. I'd been a, what I call a power user of legal, unfortunately. Uh, you know, in my companies as an entrepreneur, I'd spent all this money and time on legal, and I hated the experience. Uh, the experience of, of legal, buying legal services is very opaque to me as a customer, as a client. And it was very expensive, and often I didn't understand what I was paying for. So I started the company. I, I kind of started riffing on this idea with someone who eventually became my co-founder, Augie Rako, who was a partner at Oric. And Augie and I really hit it off in the beginning. I really liked chatting with him about this company. I really liked talking to him about the idea. He quickly assembled a team of five co-founders. Uh, someone who was working for me, not at YC, but just in my own personal capacity. He was kind of like my chief of staff. Uh, his name was Nick Cortez, and Nick and I really got along. He was like a great friend to me, like a, a really, uh, we kind of riffed on all sorts of stuff. We'd do investments together, you know, he'd work on investments together, and he actually told me to invest in this company, Teachable. It's back in 2016 that we invested. Teachable's marketplace for courses, uh, which actually sold last year for 200 and something million dollars. So actually, Nick was a really great employee. You know, so my relationship with Nick, I mean, it was amazing. Not only personal, but obviously he was a great investor too. So we were just studying different ideas. And I started riffing on this idea for a legal services startup with Augie. And then Nick kind of was excited about it. And so he joined on. And um, I recruited a friend of mine, Chris Smoke, uh, who was a YC founder as the uh, CTO. And then um, had met this other woman, uh, Bebe Chua, who I really hit it off with too. And, and she was she had been in legal service, legal startups before and had a lot of experience. She'd sold a legal startup to LegalZoom. And so I just really liked her as well. And so we kind of assembled this team of five different founders. And because of my track record, because, you know, I'm just a con and I got Twitch, you know, under my belt and I've been a partner at YC. And I just like people wanted to fund my next startup. Quite the powerhouse of a founding team. I mean, as Justin mentioned, Atrium experienced no shortage of eager investors willing to fund the startup, especially with Justin at the helm. They received a term sheet for $10 million right out of the gate from General Catalyst. They raised a Series A right out of the gate on little more than an idea. So we raised a Series A with just an idea. You know, I had an idea. Actually, this is even before we'd fully formed the team, but I had like went in with Augie with a pitch deck. You know, like a 10 slide picture that kind of pitched this vision of like what Atrium could be and got a term sheet for $10 million. 
right out the gate from um, General Catalyst. And General Catalyst, are, I mean, they're great investors. That's a million dollars per slide if anybody's keeping track. <laughs> That's right. So now they have 10 million in the bank based off a slide deck and kind of a half-baked idea. But let's take a quick break and we'll return with what happens next. So before the break, we talked about how Atrium raised $10 million in a Series A from General Catalyst off of a 10-slide deck. But they didn't stop at $10 million. So we started this company. We got this term sheet. I raised money from... I wanted to fill the round with many, many investors. We raised money from like 90 investors so that we would use them as a funnel for customers and, and really dominate Silicon Valley. We did that. I'm great at pitching. So his strategy was to raise from as many firms as he could then turn around and use them for lead generation into their portfolios, which is a smart concept. Yeah, it definitely helps for early customer acquisition. Everyone had an incentive to introduce Justin to their entire portfolio of companies and everyone in their portfolio needed legal services no matter what sector they're in. Flush with cash and set up for customer acquisition, Justin and his team started hiring quickly, really quickly. In the beginning, we, we just hired way too fast because I was like, I just want to go, 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 get customers and then figure out product afterwards. That was a huge mistake. Um, number one, true technology startups, I should say, are about product. It's about finding a differentiated solution using technology to build something that is fundamentally new. And that is something that I think I lost sight of. And there are companies out there that don't do that. Of course, like a Dollar Shave Club or something like that. It's a marketing, you know, it's marketing or places, people who figure out better forms of distribution to sell something. But like the true, ultimately dominating Silicon Valley, game-changing, world-changing startups are the ones that use technology to figure out how to do something completely new. You know, the, the Googles, the Facebooks, Twitters, Cruises, or Coinbase, all of those are companies that do something completely new that has never been possible before, and they are enabled to do it because of technology and product. And so we were not, you know, I didn't focus enough on product because I, I think I had been jaded by product and seeing a lot of startups that I, found, I felt like did not have differentiated product create some things that were, you know, very successful companies or seemed like very, very successful companies. So, you know, that was one, one of the first mistakes. So lesson number one here, he didn't focus on the product. He focused on customer acquisition. But what was he acquiring them into? Honestly, um, I don't think he really knew, uh, at least in the very beginning. But um, we'll get back to that in a second. First, on that topic of hiring. Another mistake that we made was we really just hired way too fast. you know. And one of the things that we, I didn't spend enough time doing was figuring out how do I set the culture of this company? What kind of company do I want to create in culture-wise? Like, and who are we serving for our, as our customer? You know, in our in Atrium's case, it was like, are we serving lawyers? And, our, and within lawyers, are we serving lawyers who want to make a lot of money and be partners? Or are we serving people who want to get out of big law and have more of a lifestyle, like a better lifestyle? We didn't, we never answered that question. And then, you know, of course, outside of lawyers, it's like, are we serving the clients? You know, the, the people who are buying legal, legal services. We never really spent the time to figure out who are we serving in the same way, like at Twitch, Emmett very clearly early on said, okay, we're going to serve the broadcasters, the streamers. The streamers are the ones we're going to serve because viewers will go to wherever streamers are, even if 
the site sucks because they want the content. And so we basically only built features for streamers in the very beginning of Twitch. You know, that was the right move at the end of the day. And so I didn't do that sufficiently at, at Atrium. And therefore we never had this North Star of like what customer are we serving first and foremost. And I think in a startup that serves many different types of people, that is critically important. It's better to serve a narrow niche of customers and then have that grow than start trying to serve everyone, which is the temptation for many founders who want to take over the world like I did. So he failed to set the culture and failed to set the focus of the company, you know, who they were and who they were going to serve. Instead, they tried to be everything to everyone, which generally translates to being nothing for nobody. <laughs> yep. It's very familiar and almost painful to listen to. But um, despite this, they continued to grow and they continued to raise more money. Now, another 65 million they raised led by Andreessen Horowitz. Now, we're not at the end of the journey quite yet. There is plenty more left right after this quick break. So Atrium just raised another 65 million from Andreessen Horowitz and others in kind of a, this massive round that set them over 75 million in total funding. And they're growing, not as fast as they could, but they are growing. The revenue was growing. It's just that margins were pretty tight because we hadn't really fundamentally innovated on how services were delivered. Primarily what we differentiated on was that I was a really good marketer to startups because that was my background. You know, I knew what startups wanted to hear. I was in the space, I've been, you know, have been a successful startup founder. But marketing as a primary differentiator is not good enough if the product isn't better in some way. And so along the way, this caused a lot of friction because we didn't have clearly defined goals. It's very hard to clearly define roles with my co-founders. And I think there was just a huge amount of frictional costs. And one by one, they left until I was uh, kind of the last man standing. And, I, you know, I don't put that on them. I think I did not have a lot of maturity in, I, I would say I, I didn't have a lot of empathy as a manager in the beginning. It was kind of like either you, either you succeed as a employee, you know, as a team member, either you're crushing it or you're betraying me. You know, I was very much like win or die. And there's nothing more important than winning. And the problem was that, you know, people didn't feel supported. Like co-founders did not feel particularly supported. And I think in a lot of ways, I didn't set them up for success. Four co-founders all leaving the company in secession. If, if this isn't a sign of dysfunction, I don't know what is. Yeah, this is the beginning of the end, at least publicly. So back to the product problems. Justin describes the product as a leaky bucket. The end result was a very leaky bucket. Customers would come in, the product was not sufficiently differentiated, they'd churn out. And so even though it was like a pretty big revenue base, it just wasn't working. And I was just banging my head against the wall and like, what can we make it? How can we make it work? That's incredibly frustrating. And because of the cultural issues and the fast hiring and now large team, this all made it incredibly hard to maneuver around this problem. Yeah, it's like they were stuck. And it got to the point where I said, like, I don't believe that there is a solution that we can figure out here that I would personally invest my own money in. And so even though we had now the 75 mil, we had you know, over 25 in the bank, I made this hard decision. I should return this capital to investors because I don't see a pivot that I really believe will work. And I don't want to make everyone just go through the fire drill of working on something that I don't believe in for the next six months until we run out of money. Uh, so that's what we did. And, you know, 14 months ago, I stood in front of the company that I love dearly. The bet, the worst part about this was that I, we laid off our entire team and I looked for acquihires 
or soft landings. Had one lined up, actually. Fell through at the last moment. And, and then we um, decided to, uh, I said, we have to shut down this company. And so stood up in front of the team in a team meeting. And I loved our team meetings, you know, normally. Not this one, but I loved our team meetings. And I loved the team we built. And I, I really loved the culture that we built. I was uh, really big into culture. And I built a culture around conscious leadership that I felt like was really empowering to people. But it wasn't working. The company itself wasn't working. So I ended up having to stand up in front of the company and say, hey, this isn't working and we're shutting down. And everyone is getting severance and you're going to have to find a new job. And that was really tough. You know, I was tearing up. People were crying. People were angry. And that's what we did. So heartbreaking for everyone involved. And, and you know, look, this is what startup life is like. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it gets easier. You know, if you are that founder, you are on that early team. Yeah, and this was particularly hard for, for Justin, who lost actually several good friends throughout the process. So the experience, the feeling of shutting down your company, I mean, there's so much guilt attached to shutting down your company, like if you did wrong by your investors, by your co-founders, by your employees, by your customers. It's tons of guilt. It's a lot of sadness. You have to get rid of let go of your team. A lot of it's a very easy opportunity to have a lot of rage and anger and blame. Like, why is the market doing this to me? Why did X, Y, or Z people not perform their jobs? Or why did you know why did the customers want this instead of this thing that we built? All of that you know feeds in, and um, those are the that's the emotional experience shutting down. It's it can be very difficult for people. What's interesting is is you know I, I loved many members of our team and you know it's fascinating from a clinical standpoint from a from a external standpoint it's it's fascinating to watch you know when you go through something that's tragic like that or like there's a shock to the system or it's sad it's interesting who sticks with you and who doesn't who supports you and who doesn't you know some people some executive team members some people team members were very supportive you know they said hey we understand this is tough we thought you did right by us you know you tried your best which is, you know, nice and reassuring to hear. And some people I'm still friends with, which is amazing. There's other people who I thought, you know, we were friends in the company who I never heard from them again. It is what it is. There's nothing like difficult times to show you who's really there for you. At the end of the day, it's tech. People were able to get up, go out and, and find new jobs, um, which is was great. That was my primary concern actually with the whole shutdown process. And I hope, hope it was a growth experience for the team members. You know, I, I think it was. Yeah, but that was that was super tough. Yeah, and even even still though, even with how difficult it was, I feel like I got a lot out of the experience. In the end, Justin realized that being the CEO actually isn't the role for him. It's an amazing lesson when all is said and done, knowing what you want to do and what you excel at, and that's invaluable, even if it comes through some pretty hard lessons. Well, now he's back with a new startup, Fractal. They just raised $35 million to create an NFT platform for gamers and game developers. Yeah, hopefully this is a better go from it. Sounds like he learned a lot from this failure, and I hope you did too. So either way, he'll always have Twitch uh, on his resume. So I think he'll be okay. Yeah, he definitely will. Twitch is, you know, one of our culture's biggest success stories. So you will mm -hmm. definitely always have that. But that's really going to wrap up this week for now. So for Michael Saka, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Rocketship.fm. 
Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.